Welcome to the podcast. I am Shane Barker, your host of Shane Barker's Marketing Madness Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss B2B content marketing strategies. My guest, John Wibben, is the CEO of Content Launch, a content marketing software. He's been in the content marketing industry for over 15 years and aims to make life easier for content marketers. A best-selling author of three books, he frequently talks about content marketing and its future. Listen to him as he shares some valuable tips about B2B content marketing. So, hey guys, what's going on? We've got uh, John on the podcast today. Really excited to have him. And John, once again, thanks for having us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, let's kind of start off with the basics here. When we uh, do these, when I do these types of interviews, I always kind of want to start off like, uh, like where you grew up. Like, let's kind of start off like Little John, right? Before we got to Big John and Decimal John. Why don't we talk about Little John? So, what was like, where did you grow up? Kind of give me some background. Yeah, you bet. So I grew up in San Diego County in a very rural area north of uh, the city, about an hour, a town called Vista, which back then was about 20,000 people. I grew up on a small ranch, had goats and chickens and the whole thing. And so it was a very idyllic kind of rural setting. And uh, I was in the 4-H club and had uh, two brothers and a sister, so a pretty big family. And um, yeah, I was really lucky to be in that environment growing up and had a lot of great friends and family close by. So um, yeah, very, very fortunate. So 4-H was like, that's kind of like farming, right? Isn't that like heavy yeah. in the, yeah, like, yeah, I remember that. Because I went to El Grove High School here, well, outside of Sacramento, and there was a 4-H, there was a lot of, a lot of farmers and stuff. And so that was like the sheep and the cattle and stuff. Right. That was really interesting. Yeah, like obviously the state fair being here, there was a lot of exposure to that as well. That's interesting. Well, what's cool about the 4-H club is that I really learned how to be a public speaker when I was like 12 or 13 because I was the president of my club. And so when I'm doing like speeches now, keynotes and stuff. I just hearken back to that practice, that training I got when I was a kid. And it was so, so invaluable to get it that early. You know, it's, it's funny when you talk about that because I didn't really start speaking. Well, I had a class in college that I think I tried to skip every day that I had to go, but I went because I, that I needed to go there. Right. But I think that's awesome that you did that probably not even knowing that just having to get up in front of people at such a young age, right. you know, sort of teaching a, a child, um, some, another language at a young age, right? They soak it up and they remember it a lot longer. I think that's interesting. I would never think of, I mean, I, not let your family put you in there thinking, Hey, down the road. John will speak one day, but the idea of like being in front of a crowd and you know the anxiety. I mean, we I've talked about this quite a bit about the fear of public speaking. Like people are right. full of death. Like right? the public speaking thing is just like yeah. And not to say that my first few speeches that I wasn't nervous by any means. I mean, even today you get a little nervousness. I think it's sure. always healthy to have a little nervousness. But so you were starting at a, a ripe young age of twelve on huh? getting out there in front of people. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so you said you had a pretty big family. How many had four or five brothers and sisters? Two brothers and a sister, so the four of us. And um, yeah, pretty close. And uh, we're all still pretty close today, which is great. That's awesome. You guys meet up for Christmas time and all that fun stuff. Everybody get back to Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we sure do. In fact, my brother was just had a big beach party a couple nights ago and the whole family was there. Man, I, I must have missed the invite. I, I was checking my <laughs> inbox the whole time. So I guess from here on out, I'll be invited to all the Christmas parties. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I... I'd be a part of that. Well, that's cool. Tell us, I mean, obviously I think 4-H is a really interesting fact about you. Tell us something else that maybe our audience that, that's familiar with, but they don't know about you. Like give me an interesting fact of like, I don't know, in the past we've had some pretty crazy stuff, but give me like one of the gentlemen, Aaron, that I interviewed, he was like, he was a fireman for a year and a half. I and mean, you have no idea he was a fireman. He didn't really come off as a fireman type. And then all of a sudden he said, yeah, I was a fireman for a year and a half. I'm like, why did you do that? He's like, I don't know. I just wanted to see if I could do it. He was a content marketer, gone fireman and then back to content marketer. So you have any fun facts, anything growing up that's interesting? Um, not really growing up, but kind of in my twenties, late twenties, 
I started suddenly writing pop music for no explainable reason. Bought a beat up old piano and I just started writing music. And I've been doing that now for like 15 years. And I've got maybe 300 songs I've written. And I, if I was, when I was a kid, there was nothing to show that I'd be doing that in my future. So it's been a really fun outlet, fun hobby. And it's just something I do on the side. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a little fun fact. So how does that, I mean, how does that even work? Like that, I'm just trying to think of like, I mean, obviously it's like anything else. You just start doing it and then you get better and better and better. And you start understanding how to format songs. Like I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, Um, well, I've always been a really creative person. You know, when you start a company, it's a creative endeavor, right? You're creating something that that never existed. Um, So the creativity is really the kernel of it, whether I'm writing a book, which is, you know, creating something or a business or a song. So that's, that's the heart and soul of it. Then for me, I've always been a big fan of the Beach Boys. My mom was a big Beach Boys fan in the 60s and 70s. And I, I found out that Brian Wilson, who was the founder and, and songwriter of the, of the Beach Boys, was this genius guy where he just, I mean, he wrote, you know, hundreds of songs and they're all beautiful songs. And so I really tore his music apart. I started getting interested in how he constructed the melodies and the harmonies. And I basically taught myself how to do it just by looking at his, at his scores and also the Beatles. So I did that for like three or four years. And finally, I put all the pieces together and sat down the piano and started writing some melodies. So did, and you say that the piano, like, did you just start playing the piano or did you have lessons or was it just like? No, I taught myself. I taught myself how to do it. Okay. So you're <laughs> next level. Like I, I don't have the attention span to learn the piano. Like I would, I mean, I could probably, I don't know. Yeah. That would be difficult for me. They would have to like probably <laughs> medicate me. Like I'm, I'm a more like, Hey, move, move this and the other. I mean, right. I love it. The, the guitar I've always wanted to like play the guitar or something like that or piano just something to be a little creative on that side maybe maybe one day maybe next time we talk I might be playing maybe always when on Christmas maybe I'll play the guitar at your guys's place Herp, I love it I love that let's do that that's, that's a good plan so tell so Brian Wilson so what was the movie I saw a movie on Brian Wilson I can't remember the name of the movie I was traveling somewhere yeah. and I didn't know a lot enough about the Beach Boys I mean my obviously my mom was a hippie and loved the Beach Boys I, mean, I grew up in California as well right sure. so but that movie like really blew me away just of like yeah. I think it's a lot of that same story of you become famous and you always get somebody next to your side that steals your money, not really steals your money, but you know, kind of does this stuff and pulls you in here and trying to, it's kind of an interesting story of like, and I can only imagine this is kind of off topic, but of like being a celebrity and doing those types of things. And then you don't know who's there to help you and who's there to take advantage of you. And it's like, who do you keep on your team? And we just, I just saw Bohemian Rhapsody. It's the same deal, right? It's like, great movie. Yeah. Kind of get there a little bit. I don't know. So is that, is that one of the things, did you know a lot about Brian Wilson before that? Or was it, did you see the movie or was? No, I did. I, I knew all, all about him and I'd met him at the Grammys actually in 2003, kind of a long story, but I met him and it was fantastic. And so the movie was really good. The movie you're talking about is Love and Mercy. Yeah. And it came out four, three or four years ago. And um, yeah, you know, with him, I think the music was, was a refuge for him because his father beat him and he came from a troubled background. And so he, he basically lost himself in the music and just created these masterpieces of pop music because he was trying to medicate his pain, you know, his personal yeah. pain. So that it was a strong driver for him. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was. I watched that movie, and it just was one of those. I mean, I think we're going to see obviously a lot more of those types of movies of the Beatles or whatever they yeah. come out with. Right, talking about the this old school music. That's that's all classic music. Um, yeah. I was intrigued by that story as well. I like I said before, I just was interested in the music, and then I saw that, I thought, wow, that was just like I can't. I was on a flight somewhere, and it was like I don't watch a lot of movies, but when I'm stuck in a plane with no Wi-Fi, then it's like my way. <laughs> Getting other stuff done or you know focusing right so are you still in san diego in the san diego area yeah i'm in carlsbad which is uh, again about 45 minutes north of san diego it's a nice old beach community and um yeah been there for a long time 
Yeah, I've got family member in Carlsbad. That's beautiful out there. Like beautiful, beautiful area. Nice. And then where did you where did you go? To, did you go to college or where did you go to college? Like, give me a little background. Yeah, I actually went to Chico State up in uh, near Sacramento. Well, uh, you know Chico, right? And then I went to uh, Thunderbird, which was a graduate business school in Arizona for my master's, uh, my MBA. So this is too funny. So I do know Chico because I used to own a bar in Chico. Oh, which one? So, well, it's called PF126. It was uh, used to be right next okay. to Pizza Face. Okay. For Pizza Face. Yeah, I knew the owner there, Peter, and, and we partnered up. So I, I opened up Chevy's. So it wasn't my restaurant, but Chevy's I opened up. It was a long time. I don't know how many years ago now. I opened Chevy's. I flew in and I was from Sacramento, but I worked for, this is another life, but I worked at that Chevy's. I came in and opened and trained all the employees and managers and everything. And then I was, Got it. I'm going to finish up school here. Met Peter who was opening up Pizza Face, Small World. And then all of a sudden he wanted to add a bar onto, which used to be Hey Wands back in the day, right? And so we, yep. this on. so anyways, long story short, that's funny. So, and the crazier part is, love Chico State. My thing was when I went there, because I went there a little later in life in my 20s, I always told mm-hmm. myself, like, if my son or daughter, whoever's going to happen in the future, like, I'm not going to let them go to Chico. Like, I love Chico. <laughs> a little crazy, you know? So I thought, right, kind of like, right. get through some stuff in life to go there. And I'm not kidding you. So my son went to Jesuit high school here in Sacramento. He comes to me. I want to go to Chico state, like out the gate. I'm like, Oh my golly. And I'm, so I just feel like it was this thing of, you know, I'm not going to tell him no. And he wanted to go to Arizona and there were some other colleges that were on the line, but he really uh-huh. wanted to go to Chico. And so he's, it's his second year right now. So he's really enjoying Chico. That's funny. Good. Thunderbird. Right. So Jessica, who is my niece, she actually went to Thunderbird. Um, and she no graduated maybe two years ago. Yeah. She went down to, um, right. Oh my God, what's the big college right there. Right. Malibu. Oh, Pepperdine. Pepperdine. Yeah, she went to Pepperdine and then went to Thunderbird. That's interesting. Okay, so this is this is where we got some tie-ins here for sure. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So then, like, let's let's talk a little bit as we we kind of go through this thing. You've worked for a number of big companies, and I think some there's a number of them that stand out, but I think Kia and Ford are are the two. I mean, not the biggest ones, but they're definitely big ones for sure. Like, yeah, they were the biggest. Yeah, like, how did that work out? Like, how did you get a job? I mean, obviously, you get out of college, and then what did you get out of college? Just talk about that, and then how you transitioned to working for Kia and Ford. Yeah, so I got an MBA from Thunderbird in international marketing, and I wanted to basically be the chief marketing officer for Ford. That was my goal. I was like, hey, I want to go all the way to the top of the organization, and Ford hired me out of Thunderbird. And, you know, for the first year, it was great. I really enjoyed working for Ford, big company. I learned a lot. Their training program was good. But after about a year into about a year and a half, I realized, you know what? I started hearing the little voice in my head. Uh, Maybe this isn't for me. All the meetings, all the politics, the big corporate organization, the hierarchy, it just wasn't a good fit for me. Mm. And I was getting passed over on a couple of promotions and I I wasn't sure about that. So I started thinking, man, maybe I should start a company, but what, what would it be? So I left Ford and then I went to Kia and was at Kia for five years. And it, when I was at Kia is when I, I finally started the company and that was in 2004. Gotcha. And you said there was a little voice in your head, like a Brian Wilson voice in your head. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Terrible <laughs> joke. Terrible joke. Oh, right. Cool. So that's when you, okay. So you transitioned from Ford. You were obviously, so for you, how do you know, I'm going to ask you something about goal setting because you obviously seem like somebody that's you're like, Hey, I want to go play the piano. So I go and learn it. And I, I'm thinking this is right. where there was like a lot of YouTube and stuff like that. So how do you, I mean, what do you do? Do you set like like yearly goals or, I mean, how do you do that? Cause I'm once you, it sounds like you're like, Hey, you have your vision board or whatever it is. And you're like, Hey, I want to go to be the CMO for Ford. Or is it just something you think about and you're like, that's where I want to end up. Or like, tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah. I've always been goal driven. I've always written down. I've always, since I was like 10 years old, I've always had a little like to do list in my pocket, literally in my pocket, in my wallet, since I was 10 years old on what I got to accomplish that day. And I, I have one in my wallet right now. So when you get used to that, it becomes a habit. So short-term goals, long-term goals. And so I just was, I've always been wired that way. And I just 
I've always been sort of into achievement and leaving a legacy and, and just maximizing my talents and my, my abilities. And as you get older, you really learn what those are. And you also learn what you're not good at. Yeah. And I think the biggest secret that I could pass on, not really a secret, but the biggest tip is that you should maximize your strengths and not focus on your weaknesses. What I saw at Ford and Kia is that they were trying to maximize or bring out, make my weaknesses better. And it was just, it was a lost cause. So instead of maximizing my, my strengths, they did the opposite. And so I, I'm a big believer in whatever you're good at, just do more of that. And it's funny because it's when you say that it's very simplistic in nature, but I think a lot of people don't do that. They go, listen, I'm good at these three things and I need to pick up three new things that I'm not good at and become better at them. Right. And sometimes right. that works and sometimes that doesn't, right? It's like either A, yep. like the way I look at it, and I learned this probably through the last probably 10 years, been doing the digital thing for 20 years. But what I've realized is, hey, these are, and I've done this, I've made lists of 10 things that I need to do, right, that need to be done. And I look at them and I say, what do I enjoy doing and what do I have to be there, right? If I'm speaking at an event, you know, we're, we're able to like clone sheep, but we're not able to clone Shane, thank God. Not yet, but maybe there'll be a point where, you know, somebody goes in as Shane and he's an AI robot, whatever the deal is, that's kind of freaky, but you can't really replace me. So I have to be there, right? But right. emails and other things and outreach and this other stuff, I don't have to do that myself. I'm mean, assuming you have a team. And so I think that's what's interesting about it is that it comes down to really like, what do you need to do, right? And what are you good at? And where do you want to spend your time, right? It's what you're good at and where you want to spend your time. If you don't want to just spend your time doing that, there's plenty of people out there that will want to do what that is, right? And finding those individuals. And I've learned that, you know, at a hard dose of, of reality in regards to delegation, you know, as entrepreneurs, we all start off as like, I'm going to hold on to everything and I got to control everything. I've got to do it myself. And then, you know, over time, you know, you look at your to-do list, you go, wow, this thing just keeps, seems to keep growing with more things I got. I got to start outsourcing some stuff and delegation. Yep. I think that's important where you say, this is what I'm strong at. I mean, this is yep. better at that now is dogs. I'm really strong at this, but this I'm just not strong at. Like, and, and I don't plan on being strong at that. Like, that's not my goal, right. right? Because then what happens if I'm strong at 10 things, you're not really strong at 10 things, right? And then you're not focusing on right. really good at. Right, right. Well, and I'm a big believer in Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour thing. I think that's from the book Outliers. Yeah. Uh, you're probably familiar with it as well, whether it's a Beethoven or a Mozart or the Beatles, Picasso, great artists, great intellects. They put 10,000 hours into one thing. And guess what? After 10,000 hours, you get really good at it. Yeah. So for me, for me, it was writing. I have always loved to write. Ever, ever since I was like five years old, I love to write. So I built a business around that. And I've written way more than 10,000 hours. I've probably written 20,000 hours, right? But my point is that, yeah, focus on that strength and do it a lot. And after a while, you know what? You get to be a master at it. And that's all you got to do. Yeah. It sounds simple, like I said. But. Well, it is. But I think I think what people miss out on, and, and they miss out on the 10,000 hours, right? I mean, in the sense of like, you know, people want to, you know, I want to get, get abs, but instead of a seven-second ab machine, I want the three-second ab machine, right? So you, you want to <laughs> right. skip out on these these steps. And it's like, hey, you, there's there's... Not, I mean, that's when we, I kind of joked around about AI and stuff earlier. That stuff in me, in my mind is never really going to fully replace because once again, right. there's time, you know, there's a human interaction, but there's also this time that you have to put in to be able to get to the level that you're at and I'm at. I mean, it's, it's not because, I mean, it's because we're doing it for so long. Right. And so it's right. a thing of like, we've learned a lot through that whole process. Like I always tell people like, remember old companies that I would have and stuff and I would have executive level people would always be worried, Hey, about giving up our secrets and this, that, and the other. And I said, listen, for me to get here, it was not, this not, not that easy. You don't just go steal a form from me and go do my business. Like right. knowledge, there's other stuff that goes behind that. It's that 10,000 plus hours that I think, you know, yeah. you get to a certain point and it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I'm there. And it's, 
And I think another thing that I, I see too, as we go through this is when I do these, you know, speaking engagements and workshops and stuff, you realize how much knowledge you have. Like, I think you, like for me, I always know that I do right. until you go and you speak and you're like, God, I thought this was kind of not basic, but like a lot of people knew this and you realize that they don't, you know? So it's kind that's of right. how you really put in that time. And it's, yeah. it's hard until you interact with other people that you realize, wow, I'm, I'm onto something. Like I really, I really have put in some time here, 10,000 plus hours. Right. Right. And when you're good at something, you, I think you naturally assume that everyone else is good at it to a certain extent too. Like when I, in 2004, when I started my, my content writing business, I thought, wait a second, people are going to pay me to write for them. Really? And then I realized, wait a second, a lot of people don't like to write. They don't enjoy it. It takes too much time. They want to outsource it. So that was sort of like the light bulb, like, oh my gosh, people are going to pay me to write and I'm pretty good at it. So, hey, let's make some money. And that comes down to the writing down your 10 things. And if I hate writing, guess what? John loves writing. Yep. Trace. So, I mean, that's where we look at that and that stuff that you don't have to, I mean, that's what's awesome these days, especially with the internet. I mean, the world is your oyster. I mean, I can find somebody to write, I can somebody to do a website. Right. I go figure out how to do all that. Like back in the day, it was kind of like, you got to do it all. And I always think about like when I, because I started when my business is probably 20 years ago now, like, God, how did I do that without the internet? Like, I'm just trying to think of like, did I call people? And I'm trying to think because I there was a, a supply thing that it was a, I was importing products. Uh huh. Because it was I'm still trying to like rack my brain on how that was how I even made those connections. You know, it's like what I do like send out. A it was hard. It was a whole different world. Yeah, it yeah. was. Now it's it's crazy. Like I talked to my son. We talked about him being at Chico State, and you know he's excited about getting history doing business, which I've, I was kind of proud of and excited about. But you know, I look at it and I go, man, it's just a different deal. And he's like, yeah, and you know, companies and this like the other. But I'm like, man, you've got the internet. Like it's just crazy out there. Like you can make money from 10,000 different ways. And that's what's interesting to me. Of course, it sucks when you have ADHD and there's 10,000 different ways to make money. For me, right, I got to not heavily medicate, but maybe medicate a little bit to focus on a few things. <laughs> but it's interesting to have that. I think it's just an interesting time because there's so many options, you know, but I, I once again, focusing on one thing and getting that 10,000 hours is probably going to be uh, highly recommended. So yep. you said in 2000, was it 2004 that you started Content Launch? Yes. And so, well, actually, I started a company called Custom Copywriting. Uh, back in 2004. So that was the first iteration of Content Launch. Content Launch started around 2010 is when I rebranded to Content Launch. Gotcha. And so what do you guys, I mean, give us a little rundown. I mean, obviously it sounds like you're obviously writing services, but give me a little rundown of what you guys do. Yeah. So for 13 years, we were a content writing agency. So we wrote content for over 700 companies and we had a hundred writers on our team and we wrote blog posts and eBooks and white papers and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and then around 2014, I started thinking, well, what do we want to do here? Do we want to keep growing the agency? Or the other option was build a platform to do content marketing better, faster, easier. So we decided to build the platform. So we now have a content marketing platform that helps you plan, create, and distribute all of your content. That's awesome. And so you guys obviously developed that yourself. How long ago did you develop the software? We started that in 2014 and we had a, an alpha product uh, version of the, of the product in 2016, but it wasn't quite ready for prime time. We, we went into beta and our, our users told us a lot of, uh, we had a lot of negative feedback and, and we, we made changes based on that. So we took down the whole front end, redid the whole front end of it, redid some of the back end as well. And so now we've got a very vastly improved product currently, which it took us about a year and a half to redo a lot of that. But you know what, that's, that's par for the course. That's kind of what's expected when, when you're building software, I mean, it's got to be good and you're competing against other platforms. It's got to be really good and do something special. And so now we have that, but it took a while to get there. Yeah. This just in, and no software ever comes out perfect ever. Right. right? You always right. think you're like, Oh, this is great. This is awesome. And you send it out to the wolves, to the sharks and you're like, Ooh, yep. it's brutal, but I guess yep. you got to make some iteration changes, but that's the whole point, right? The idea yep. is to yep. go out in beta and then come back with creative criticism and things that need to be changed and get that done. So yep. your guys' platform, is it accessible? Like if I myself, you know, was producing content, is it just for anybody? Is it you guys use 
it internally or is it for the whole world? No, it's, it's for everybody. Yeah. It's uh, contentlaunch.com and we, we offer a freemium version of it. So we, we built it for small agencies, but cause we have an agency version, but any company can use it. Any company that's, that's do, doing content uh, really could take advantage of it. And is it rumor true that anybody that interviews you for a podcast, they get free access? I mean, that's, I, I've heard that. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Certain people. And then you're in that, you're in that club. Yeah. I knew there was a reason because my team was like, who should we interview? And I was like, listen, I heard rumors that I can get access to content launch if you interview. There you go. I'm like, are you serious? And I go, listen, I don't know if the rumors are true, but I'm going to find out. I'm going to get the the rumors are true. Yeah. That's all. I mean, this, I feel like we could just shut the podcast down now. I mean, the, the dishes are done. Like, I feel like my goal, I had one goal to do. Good night, everybody. Was Please tip your bark then. We're done. It's done, <laughs> folks. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit. I mean, gosh, so three books. So you, you have three best-selling books. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Like, I mean, how do you, first of all, you're a, a huge writer, right? So, I mean, that's obviously you love doing that. I'm, I'm saying yeah. this mainly for the, well, partly for the audience, mainly for me, because I've been starting, I say starting on my book, and that's the keyword starting. I have good. You know, some good stuff going, but it's just, it's so hard for me to like, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And it's just, I'm, an, I'm not a bad writer. I do a lot of writing, but I'm, I'm not a bad, now I have a team now, but not a bad writer, but man, just, I mean, how do you pump out three? Like, I don't, that would take me like, I think 700 years at this pace, maybe eight uh, years potentially. Yeah. So my first book came out 11 years ago now. And the idea there was I'd always wanted to write a book, right? It was always a dream of mine to write a book. I had gotten some experience in the content marketing space. I'd been doing that for a good seven or eight years at that point. I had a lot of clients, a lot of successful projects. So I thought, well, I'm going to start teaching this stuff. And the best way to do that is write a book. So I didn't know how to write a book. So I went to a a class that a guy named Dan Pointer gave up in LA. Dan Pointer was well known at that point for giving the seminar on how to write a nonfiction book. So I took his seminars in Santa Monica for a two day, over a two day period. And this guy basically wrote the book on how to write a nonfiction book. So I, I read his book. I went to a seminar. I met him. He was my coach for about three months while I started writing the book. And so for anyone out there that wants to start a nonfiction or business type book, I would recommend Dan Pointer's uh, the self-publishing guidelines or self-publishing something self-publishing. I can't remember the exact title, but it's a great book. And so that's how I started it. And then uh, to get it done, I basically you know went to different Starbucks locations and um, and over a period of two months got that book done. And I think it was. The reason being in Starbucks, why I did that is because for me, it was inspiring being around other people who are working Uh. and doing creative things. And the whir of the coffee machines and espresso machines, something, the smell of the coffee, it was a really good atmosphere for me to write. And so I just, I did that and it worked and I just would bounce around from Starbucks to Starbucks. And uh, like I said, over a two month period, I got it done. That's awesome. So two months, it's your first book. So how long it took you two months to write it? Yeah. And it was about uh, 250 pages, but I'm a fast writer, right? And that's something I'm really good at. So once I would get going and also drink my coffee, right? That was right up, right where I was in the, the location. I would just go up, get a coffee. I'd drink that. And I would, I was probably 30% more productive with a cup of coffee in me. So that was also my secret. So did you have a limit of the amount of coffee that you would drink or would you go 10, 15 cups all in? Or I mean, give me the, uh, I would go to about seven or I'd go about seven or eight. Yeah. And I was flying at that point. I could write, I could literally write for five hours straight if I had lots of caffeine. So you take the God given ability plus caffeine and it was magic. That's a good combo. Did you ever go to Coffee's Anonymous or no? I heard rumors about this. Uh, I could have started that. Yeah, I could have started that club. I did not, but uh, I could still start that club. Just so you know, I mean, I'm, I would love to join because I am I uh, I don't <laughs> usually need coffee, but in the morning, I'm always having coffee. In fact, at my office, I'm always, it's it, the, the, the my, my employees here always laugh at me because I do little what I call micro doses. Like I'll just go in and squeeze just a little bit of coffee just because I don't want to, I want to keep it warm, but I'm, I like to, I, I usually go till about 2 p.m. and that's usually when I have to tape 
taper off and yep. you know, try to get keep some water going as well that way. There you go. You know, a little hydration with a little little uh, caffeination is never a bad thing. There you go. So you got, so, okay. So your first book only took two months, which is like, you know, that makes me like feel terrible inside because it's taken me like 40 years, but yeah. what about your second book and your third book? And all the books are all, they're all about content, right? I mean, they're all in that, that space. Uh, the first two are about content marketing yeah. and how to do it. The, the last book that came out two years ago is about the future of marketing, ah. the future of the marketing practice. And that's all forward thinking. But yeah, so the first book sold 5,000 copies and that's sort of the magic number yeah. to where you can get a publishing deal. And back then this is 2010, 2011, the publisher started calling saying, Hey, do you want to do a second edition of your first book? And so, I took the offer from the you know, largest bidder, right? We had three, three offers from three different publishers. And so my second book, Content as Currency, came out in 2012. And that's when I started uh, doing the speaking engagements. And that kind of opened the floodgates to, to everything. And I got, you know, voted as a thought leader in various polls and stuff like that. But it was really my second book. My first book was okay. My second book was really what gave me the entree into the industry. Awesome. And what about, I mean, that's, that's okay. So then the third one, so you're, I mean, I was kind of looking at this as I was, as we were, before we started talking, what about the political side? So it looks like you've worked with a, a few different political folks as well. Like how do you, yeah. you just, you, you're, I don't know, you kind of blowing me away. Cause there's always like, there's like more layers to this onion that, that I've seen with most people I interview. So <laughs> you work with, with John McCain and kind of give me like, what did yeah. how you start working with like political folks in regards to this? I'm obviously a good writer. So I'm, I'm assuming that played in somehow. Yeah. You know, I was 18 and I got, a call from a buddy of mine who said, uh, yeah, there's an assemblyman or a guy running for assembly here in San Diego and we really need help with the campaign. And he knew that I was, I like politics. And so I, I volunteered when I was 18 to help run this campaign. And it was such a great experience at 18 to have that kind of experience. Yeah. And the guy ended up losing the election, but it was a great learning uh, thing for me. And so when I went to grad school in Arizona to get my MBA, I had some free time before I started my program there. And I just basically knocked on the door to John McCain's office, talked to his office manager and said, hey, are you guys looking for interns? And they were, and I got hired that day. And so I ended up working for John McCain for about four months, part-time, just in the mornings from like eight to noon. But I worked with John and he was the uh, best boss I ever had. Obviously, he just passed recently and uh, just a great guy, a great family man, and obviously uh, one of the greatest government officials we've had in the last 40 years. So it was a real honor to work for him. And, and then that, that led me to the Republican convention in 96 in San Diego and and so that's kind of how that all happened. That's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I was looking at that as like, I had, that's what I love about my podcast. I mean, A, it is, we talk about content, but it's also the story. Like, I'm always interested, intrigued by people's story because it's like, I mean, I would, obviously, we don't know each other other than this podcast today, but it's just interesting to like your background of that. It's like, how would you, and that's why I like hearing those kind of stories is like, how did you start working with John McCain? Because I've, that you hear that from somebody that worked with him that validated that, that he was an awesome person, that he did good things. So that's kind of cool to hear. Yeah, you know, a lot of politicians are have to have that element to their personalities where they're a little bit phony baloney and they, maybe they, they put on a good show. But John was, was sincere and authentic right down to the core and uh, obviously war hero, the whole thing. So it was a real, real great opportunity for me at age 26 to have that as a, as a you know, touchstone in my life. Huge honor for sure, but everything happens for a reason. So that was kind of cool that, that that happened for sure. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about, obviously you do a lot of speaking at like conferences and summits and stuff. Like how did that, like how did that, I mean, I think you talked about it a little bit about, you know, how you when raised and you were kind of doing speaking stuff early, but how did you jump into the conference scene and why did you do that? Was that to like, to talk about your book or like what was your reasoning for jumping into the, the speaking scene? Yeah, well, I've always enjoyed that part of my career. I've always enjoyed, you know, speaking and, and communicating in front of a large audience. It's just something I've been doing since I was a little kid, as I mentioned. And 
so yeah, my first book 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to kind of get out there again, really for the first time in maybe 15 years. And so I did a lot of local, like chamber of commerce events, you know, uh, local business groups, meetups, you know, I spoke at like a Denny's for a meetup group, you know, I mean, you, you start there and you kind of work, work your way up. And so I did a lot of free uh, gigs for the first couple of years and just kind of, you know, honing my chops a little bit, getting better in front of a group and, and uh, really uh, communicating my message. So that, that started about 10 years ago. And then, then I started doing the, the conference speaking. I started, um, you know, submitting applications to, to speak at marketing conferences. And that really steamrolled. And I, you know, within a couple of years, I'd done like 20 different conferences. So. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's the thing with speaking is that obviously being like, I don't know if it's the number one or number two fear, right? Death is like, I think number two, and I think speaking, <laughs> public speaking is number one in that category. Yeah. But you yeah. know, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, speaking, I've done a good amount of it and, and I'm, I'm at the kind of the, the point where I'm going to start doing a lot more, but it's, it's interesting because it really comes down to, it's like anything. The way I look at it, it's like the more, and you, you kind of touched on this, like the more opportunities you get, I don't care if it's free. I don't care if it's in front of 10 people. It's like, you have to get so many under your bet for your belt to be able to feel comfortable. Right. And so you get to that point where it's like really any opportunity, if you want to be a speaker, the way to become better, A, is there's, you know, Toastmasters and there's other programs like that, but it's literally just to do it. And, and I, I can tell you firsthand, I'm sure you can too, that when you go to do it, I mean, my first few events, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm like, can I drink tequila right now? And like, you know, like, how do I loosen up or how do I like, cause it's very, I, I don't think necessarily people see it as much when I'm on stage. Cause I've had people say, Hey, great job. Da, da, da. And I'm thinking in my head, I was, I was out of my mind. Like, I'm like, I can't believe I jumped up there and, and did what I did. Yeah. It's very much, I mean, I, I'm already a fast talker, right? So it doesn't help for me to have adrenaline plus, plus fast talking. Like then people are like, God, that guy's he, you know, on speed or something or like what's his deal up there right I'm always a really passionate like kind of a you know aggressive type person but it's interesting I, I like that where it's like hey you you know speak at Denny's you speak at whatever it is right wherever you get that opportunity because everything you learn something from everything right you get to a point because you know 99% of the people once again they only learn from doing right and it's like you become a better speaker by just doing more speaking opportunities so I kind of do the same thing like any chance I get to get up in front of a group and whether it's even I mean I've had two events where they were spontaneous like literally people knew me that were there and somebody didn't show something happened and said hey can you go do this and I'm like god I'm not prepared but I'm like what does that really mean right I know my stuff so it's not really like hey just get up there and do it so it's you know and you you know something always goes wrong something always happens but I think in the end it's just like getting out there and doing it yeah and there's a, there's a little trick for, for folks that are getting their feet wet and who are new to speaking the trick is this, what you want to do is sort of the Jedi mind trick with yourself, which is you tell yourself like, you know, a couple hours before you're doing the engagement that, hey, I've got something to teach. I've got something important. These people are going to learn from me. They need to hear this, right? It's almost like you're, you're talking yourself up and you're prepping yourself. And you're getting yourself psyched up. And, and actually, it's partially true because they are coming there to hear what you have to say. And a lot of them don't know anything about the topic. So you're there to educate them, to teach them, to inspire them. And so knowing that, like, I think it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Yeah, that's a great point. I had, um, I spoke, I was one of the keynotes over at Entreport in, in Santa Barbara when they had just their last event that they had. The reason why I'm telling you that I had a lady that reached out to me through direct message and said, listen, I'm speaking as well on, the, on one of the stages. And she goes, I'm like losing my mind. I can't believe I signed up for this. And I said, listen, I said the exact same thing. I said, you have to realize that you have some knowledge that other people right. 
right? And you don't realize that. You're like, oh my God, they're going to, what I'm going to tell them, everybody's going to know it. You're not going to satisfy the all 200 people or a thousand people, whatever that is. The right. way when I go to, when I go and I go to presentations or I go to, you know, to events, conferences, for me, because I have a good base of knowledge when it comes to marketing, I'm just looking for a few nuggets, right? Like a website I didn't know about or something. It doesn't need to, I don't expect to be like blown away, like Tony Robbins style, like where I leave, I'm like, oh my God, I got to change my whole life, right? I mean, I'm just looking for good nuggets of information. And yeah. what I was telling her was like, you have to realize that they're coming to, to your session for a reason. Because yeah. they need that knowledge, right? And you have to understand that you have, you have the expertise of a year, two years, five years, 10 years, and it's very personal to you. Nobody's going to be able to say that's not what happened or you didn't learn that because you did, right? Right. So you don't have to worry about that. This is your own personal experience. These are things that you've done that have equaled a success for you. Nobody's going to stand up and go, you know what? I think you're lying. I think you're like, right. Nobody's going to do that. You're going to be fine. And so she did later on. She thanked me and she goes, God, I couldn't believe like the warm welcome at the end. I'm yeah. like this because you have valuable information. Like everybody wants to learn through somebody else's experience. If I can watch John up on stage and I can, you know, ignore or, you know, skip six, one year, 10 years, five years of knowledge of things that I would need to go figure out on my own. Yeah. That's the value. Right. And I think that people don't realize that they, you know, and I, in the beginning, I used to be that way. I would think, God, I feel like everybody already, like just recently I had a, a workshop we did in San Francisco for influencer marketing. And I have to admit, I went in there confident, but I was thinking, God, what happens? I mean, I had Amazon was there. We had anthropology. We had purple.com. We had some really big brands. And for me, I'm thinking, you know, I got Amazon in the house. Like, you, you know, Amazon's obviously huge, but I'm like, they probably know everything that I'm going to say. Right. And there's always a little voice in the back of your head. Like I would never, well, I'm telling everybody now, but usually I don't, you know, it's like, come on, man. And then at the end of it, my biggest fan was the guy from Amazon. Like literally came up, yeah. hey, my God, cr absolutely great content. So right. glad. That, and I'm like, it's so funny because I would think, once again, because they're a big company, they've got this, they've got money. It's not, knowledge isn't the problem, right? It's, and then all of a sudden they were at the event and they came up and I was like, God, that's just so awesome. Then it's like, but once again, that was the one thing I was worried about. Big company, like they're going to know everything, but they don't. Yeah. And to your point, so I think a lot of speakers who are new to it, see it as me and them or us and them. They build a little bit of a wall between themselves and the audience. It's actually us. You're all in it together yeah, yeah. and you're going to learn from each other. So the Amazon guy can, can actually add value to the keynote or to the, whatever you're doing and vice versa. So it can be sort of an educational experience for everybody in the room. Right. And the other thing too, is you're trying to bat 300. You're not trying to bat 800 or a thousand. You're trying to capture 30% of the room. Okay. You're not going to capture 80 or 90%. You're just not going to do it. So if you're capturing 30%, you're doing really well. Yeah. Well, and that's what's kind of cool about it. It's actually kind of nice to hear those numbers because I know for us with the workshop that we did, because it was really hands-on type workshop, I was a little nervous because I thought, well, not actually the, the, the guy that I was doing it with came up and he says, hey man, after lunchtime, that's when a lot of people leave. And there was only enough room for 30 people in the, the place that we had, we had rent. Actually, there was room for 30, we had 32 because two people were like, hey, I'm like, I told my boss I was going to be here. Like I have to be here. Like there's no, like, I'll stand. Right. Okay, great. You'll stand. But it's, you know, after lunch, everybody stayed, you know, and it was like, God, that's wow. awesome. And once again, you know, it's like, and you're not going to get that with the bigger events, right? Because somebody right. else is paying the bill right now. If you're, if it's your company and you're paying the bill, you're probably going to stay, right? But if it's on somebody else's yeah. bill, you might have a beer during you know, lunch or whatever the thing is, you know, it's, it's not quite as serious, but that's awesome. I think 30%, I think that's a good number to look at for like, hey, you're going to connect with this amount of people. And that's a yeah. great amount. You don't have to hit an 800 or 900, right? The idea is, is yeah. connect, you get a good message. The stuff that you're saying is real because you actually you know, went through it yourself. 
And that's awesome. I mean, that's some, some good, good little snippets. Those are, if I was listening to this, those would be my good snippets of information. Well, and also the people that maybe they listening for 10, 15 minutes and they realize that they know everything that you're talking about, they can leave the room, right? They, they don't have to stay. And, so, and you'll get that. You'll get people to leave and that's fine. So don't be offended if that happens because that's pretty normal. Yeah. You want the people that are really there to learn and you'll, you'll connect with them if you're sincere and you have some good stuff to say. What I do is if people get up, I'm, I'm like comedians that I've seen in the past. I call them out. I'm like, hey, where are you going? You go where are you going? Yeah. Number one or number two. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I can't believe it. Like I was just going to drop the bomb of all the information right. you needed and then you disrespected me in front of the whole room. Yeah. No, I don't, I, don't do, I don't do that at you all. You can always do that too for a little comedy relief, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people are like scared to go to the bathroom and they're like peeing their pants because <laughs> they don't want to stand up during Shane's presentation. Uh, well, cool. So let me, let's talk a little bit about like a B2B like content strategy. So like, if you had a secret, now I know this is obviously you have years and years of knowledge of this, but if you had like the one secret that you're like, man, I really wish that like B2B companies in regards to their content strategy would do this or something that you're saying, hey, listen, everybody's missing the boat here. Like, what would that be? Yeah, well, kind of piggybacking off what I just said about how speakers can sometimes build a wall between themselves and the audience. I think that happens with a lot of companies, a lot of brands, big brands and small companies who sort of inadvertently build a little bit of a wall between themselves and the customer and see it as us and them when actually it's, it's you're all together in this and it's a relationship, right? You're trying to grow together. And so how you build a relationship with your friends and family, you need to take some of those ideas and apply it to the way you connect with customers. And so if you're doing that, if you take some of those tactics, when you're connecting with your friends, you're conversational, you're casual, you're sincere, you're trying to find out what they need from you, right? And vice versa. And a lot of times companies, we all kind of fall in love with our products and services and think we're great and everything. And actually, you know what? We're not always that great. So we need to kind of, you know, bring that wall down too. So I think it's about sincere and authentic connection. And we do that in many different ways, right? It's not just sending emails out, right? It's picking up the phone and calling people. It's meeting them at, at their level at a trade show or at a customer event. Yeah. It's all kinds of ways, right? It could be a, a focus group. It could be a customer summit or something like that. So I think it's sincere and authentic, regular touches with your customer and constantly asking them questions about how you can improve and making it a very two-way conversation, not one way. So all of those, I know just unloaded a lot of stuff right there, but in my 15 years of experience, that's kind of how I crystallize it down to the you know, five or six important things. I think another thing which you, you kind of touched on is also just being genuine and caring. Right, just care because I think that's what sometimes it becomes. Oh, they're just another client, right? But what you have to think about if you're servicing this client, a there's a lot of options, right? So you got to be careful of that. But if you're not taking care of them because you think your stuff is optimal and nobody's better, that's going to come back to bite you in the ass potentially, right? And so yeah. I'll give you a small example. So I have a, a client by the name of Chris Rudin that was just on the Titan Games. He's an influencer, blah blah blah, all this fun stuff. Great guy. He's been a client of mine for a long time. He's he actually he was on the Titan Games, but he has seven fingers, so he has a prosthetic arm and he's diabetic, right? And the okay. guy's gone through some stuff. And the reason I'm telling you this is really getting big into the speaking um, engagements and I'm helping him get some speaking engagements. And so he nice. had a lady that was part of the speakers bureau that, that said, Hey, we have a deal for you guys. So we, anyways, about two weeks ago in St. Louis, he went, he did it, crushed it. Phenomenal job. And I told him, I was like, Hey, listen, like you have to realize that they deal with a lot of speakers. I said, what we need to do now is it's going to be like, we have to show them how much we care and the fact that they brought a speaking gig to us. So what we did is we got some gift cards, not all gift cards, because that's a total male thing, right? Like not knowing any idea, like what to get somebody's a gift card. Gift card, got them some makeup. We got some girls involved of like, what would be a good package for them? Cool. We sent them off to them and said, hey, want to thank you so much for picking Chris to be a part of this, right? Because they have a valid, they're the ones who look through the lists. 
of speakers, right? They're the ones that say, this guy's good, this guy's not good. So guess what? We want to be top of mind. So I told Chris, hey man, spend 30, 40 bucks, whatever the number is, send it to the coordinator and the the sales lady lady that was in the middle of the, the thing. So he sends it out to him. Yesterday, we get this message from them. Oh my God, thank you so much. Nobody's ever done this for us. You're our favorite. I, we're going to be looking for more events for you. So we're looking at a, a $30, $40, $50 investment, right? Shipping and everything. It equals, in this situation, it was a $5,000 speaking event. And we could have one, two, three, four more of those, right? And I think it's that human side of it. Like we don't think of, we just think of this as business. But if you pull yourself back for a second and say, this is a human being and how much effort would it really take to do a handwritten letter, write a little card, what people don't do, and you send this out. Right, crazy powerful. And like, so she got up, one of them got a hold of Chris. The other lady got a hold of me through text message. Her name's Katie. Shane, thank you so much. That was so cool. I was not at the office, but somebody else grabbed it for me. You, can we talk again? Because we want to talk about some other events. I mean, from two different angles. So now I have two ladies in the office that are going to break their neck to put Chris on another event because he did well. We had great communication. We were, you know, once again, we were on top of our stuff. And I just thought, you know, that's what you, that's going that extra mile you know, because you, you want to treat people with that. How would you want to be treated? And I don't think we always think about that when it comes to client stuff. As you said, there's a little bit of a wall. It's like, oh, they're the client. I'm all educating. I'm all like omnipotent or something, right? Yeah. But the idea of it, like, how do we work together? Like, how do we make it so that there's that good synergy and we got things going and, and, it, and treat them like a human, I think is, is an important part of that thing. And I think we miss that a lot of times, not just with content strategy and business to business, but just in, I guess, being a human and, you know, in business in general, I guess. Yeah, well, and the other thing too is just take a minute and stop trying to sell all the time, right? I mean, we're always trying to sell, 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 buy this, buy that. It's like, no, just relax. Calm down on the selling stuff for at least a bit. You can go back maybe on the fourth or fifth or sixth touch to do that. And there's ways of doing that. But let's not always be selling first, right? So that's another one that kind of is one of my pet peeves. Yeah, it is. And I think it's because you're, you know, the thing is there's plenty of people just selling, selling, selling. If you build that relationship, because really what they want to know is they want to know your experience. They want to feel that you're human and that you're, that you're going to be able to help them, right? And it's not yeah. off throwing out numbers and throwing packages at them. So I think it's some good stuff, good stuff. So what about, what are some like good like apps you use or, or um, tools or software? Like what do you, you as an individual or maybe your company, what are some tools that maybe a people are already using, but maybe other stuff that people would know about? Are there any tools you guys leverage? Yeah. So I think one of the big mistakes a lot of companies make is they, they have too many tools using and they're spending too much money on them, right? You don't have to have 10, 20 different tools to connect with your customers. I mean, we've been using MailChimp for a long time and it works. It's an affordable tool and you know, I like it, you know, so MailChimp is one of the things we use. We use our own software, Content Launch for content marketing, planning and creation. We've used HubSpot in the past for marketing automation. Uh, we're now using SharpSpring uh, for a lot of marketing automation. It's a great tool as well. So email uh, for social media, we use Hootsuite. Again, very affordable. It does a lot. You know, we've used Google Docs in the past. That's a free tool. We don't use it as much anymore. For project management, we've used Basecamp, another affordable tool. Yeah. Uh, we also use Asana, uh, which is a little more expensive, but but good. So those are the some, some of the ones we use on a regular basis. That's awesome. Yeah, I know um, the guys over there. I know Rick. Over there at, at um, Short Spring, that was. Yeah, Rick Carlson, great guy. 
Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's anyways. I know quite a few of those people, but it's kind of awesome. Yeah, that, we use some of those tools. We use we're heavy on Slack, and we've had some good experiences. Oh, Slack, Slack is great too. Yep, communications cut down some of my emails, which is always a good thing because we know we get enough emails these days. Uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, the cost for all those tools on a monthly basis probably 150 bucks, right? So saying there's some like I mean Hootsuite and all those guys. I mean it's like 19 bucks, 29 dollars. I mean it's so yeah. not you know which once again it doesn't need to be. I mean there's it's you know they've built this out so they're continuous. I mean they're at this point at the years now where they're just building great features because they have such a good base of people and so you can still right. get it at a nominal rate. So what do you think like the marketing technology landscape, how do you think it's going to transform in let's say 2019 and moving forward? Like how do you think that landscape's going to change? I mean, because obviously everything's always changing. What do you think? Yeah. What are your predictions for that? Yeah. So in my book, Future Marketing, I talk about the rise of AI, which we're seeing now, uh, AI and marketing, and also virtual reality content is, is coming on strong, right? So, so we're going to see a lot of stuff in AI and VR over the next few years uh, in terms of the MarTech stack, right? So we're going to have VR uh, platforms that manage all your VR for you, help you plan, manage, and distribute all of that. AI is really going to take over a lot of the automation and really take time out of the equation for you. I think there's been a fear that AI is going to take over your job and stuff like that. No, that's not right. They're actually going to take the mundane tasks that you don't like doing and do them for you. So it's sort of like having an assistant. You know, that's how you, people need to see AI. So all that's going to be just super fast ramp up over the next few years. And in terms of MarTech, I mean, if anyone's seen the MarTech stack from Chief MarTech, uh, Scott Brinker and his team have put that together over the last few years. There's like 8,000 MarTech platforms, right? From social to SEO to CRM to content marketing. And it's pretty overwhelming. But the good news is there's something for everybody, every industry, every budget, every need. So it's a question of looking at that and seeing, you know, in terms of your stack, your MarTech stack, what tools do you need that will address your budget, your customer needs, your, your team's needs? And that's a process that should take some time. I would say, you know, four to six weeks of really studying platforms, getting demos, looking at what would be appropriate. And, you know, how many do you need in your, in your stack? Well, you have email, you have social, you have CRM, you have your content management, you have your content marketing. So, you know, probably between eight and 12 platforms uh, in your stack. And, um, and you got to make sure they all can speak to each other or most of them can. So that's kind of for folks that are just getting started, maybe they're just using MailChimp right now and maybe WordPress and one other, uh, maybe they haven't thought in terms of a stack. But if you really want to capitalize on the efficiency of these things, you got to have a few that are using that you can work in conjunction with each other. So kind of a long answer to your question, but that, that's kind of where I would start. Yeah, it's always fun that delicate balance, right? Because some stuff does this, some stuff does that. I mean, we've kind of seen that with, because we used to use Basecamp, we've used Asana, we use Trillo now. There's always something, there's a new one that we just started using called Griffin, which is kind of really cool, kind of ties in a lot of the stuff. But there's always like, oh, I love seven things out of 10 here, or this one has, oh, these other four things here. And it's like, there's never a software, because everybody has different needs, right? So that's the hard part is like, how do you take care of everything without making it extremely confusing? So that's, I think, what the important part is to go and figure out like, hey, this works here, this works here. Oh, great. They tied together. Okay, great. There's communication going on there so that it's not, you know, I guess, discombobulated or, you know, it's not connected. Yeah. And the, the other thing I always mention after you determine your MarTech stack and you, you know, sign up for your accounts and you, got, you know how to use them, then really, I think the first order of business is looking at your database, your customer database and segmenting that 
cleansing the list, segmenting it, and then building your workflows for all your emails, your email campaigns, and making sure that you do that right because you need to add some personalizations, some customizations, some value add on the flows. A lot of companies still aren't doing that correctly. All the auto emails and drip emails and, and you know, what are they sending? A lot of companies are sending the same email to everybody, right? And that just doesn't work anymore. So Yeah, the segmentation I think is going to be obviously a big thing moving forward. It's, yep. you know, most of the companies we work with or that, you know, before we start working with them, it's like the segmentation is like, no, we send the same email to 10,000 people. I'm like, how's that working for you? I'm like, eh, yeah, not very well. <laughs> That's the reason you hired us. Well, cool. So tell us about like, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of cool things in your life, but, and you're only, you know, halfway there, I would say, what about your projects or accomplishments that you consider like most significant, like in your career? Like, what would you say? I mean, I think meeting John McCain and working for him is a big thing, but like not coming out of my mouth, like, what would you say? Like, Hey, this is like the one thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be business. It could be, Hey, my first child, or maybe it's not, I don't know. Like, what would you say? Like, you know, what, what, what's that accomplishment that you can go, wow, that's like, that's going to not maybe necessarily bring a legacy, but it's like, man, that's the one thing that really stood out. Well, I think my answer to that is going to be kind of different than what would be expected, which is, I think I've really parlayed my creativity, my, my skills in, in creativity across many different things, right? That's really what I've brought to the table is I've written books, I've written songs, I've produced albums, I've created companies, um, I've spoken. And, but what underlies all of that is my need to be creative, to create something that never existed before. So a lot of creative people, you think, oh, they, you, people get, they pigeonhole them. They're just musicians or just artists or just painters. But I think oh, there's a lot of creative people out there in business too, okay? And I think it's a good place to be and a good place to live is that creative place because that's something that cannot be offshored, right? That's something that cannot be outsourced, right? Your creativity and your, what you bring to the table from a creative point of view is yours and yours alone. Um, and I think as business people, those who are maybe very left-brained and not so much right-brained, I would challenge them to really sit down and try and find that inner child, right? To use an overused phrase. And remember when we were back in first grade and second grade, everyone finger-painted, right? We all created something when we were little. So why can't we do that now as business people? So I think that creativity thing has really been something that I've, I've leaned on and, and done well with to, in a variety of different ways in my life. And so that's, I think that's my answer is I'm proud of the way I've been able to do that across many different disciplines. Yeah, that is really cool. That is a nice, cause that, that is the core of everything you've done, right? It's like being creative, which is I think so. because it has to do whether it's on the political side of things on whether it has to do writing a book, it's like, you know, not your superpower, but it is your superpower, right? That's, that there's that common line of creativity of like, and then also I think, you know, being ambitious and, you know, wanting to take on a challenge, which is, you know, kind of the thing too, and being creative about that and how you, how you pursue that. I think the other piece of that is I was raised to really be in the service of others. My parents did a really good job of always, you know, emphasizing that be kind and be considerate and find how you can help and be of service to other people. And so that's the other piece of it too, is, is, go, is leading with that, you know, and I think eventually if you do that enough and you come from an authentic place, the money will come, right? And your success will come. It's just, we need to always remain focused on that. I'm a firm believer in that too. I, for me, it's like, just pay it forward. Like I always just yeah. do things and good things will come back your way. In fact, I was yeah. just talking about this for me when I was younger, it was about money. I was like, oh, I got to do this, got to make X amount. <laughs> for me, right. it's like still the opposite now. Like I don't even look at, I mean, I look at money for projects, but it's not the number one thing. It's not the number one factor. Right. For me, it's like, am I going to enjoy it? Right. And then also the other side of it, like, are we going to, you know, is it going to be a good working relationship? Right. And I don't Absolutely. know. I just, I think that's really interesting to look at because it's, it's, it's an important thing. Like I said, I think as we get older, I mean, anyways, for myself, like that's, that's just a, that's a point of something that just, it's, I think it's become different over the last few years or the last probably 10, 15 years for me. Yep.
let's switch gears a little bit here. So I'm going to get, we're going to, we're going to dig deep into to John, the individual, and it's, you know, it's a Friday. So this is, this is really exciting stuff. Who is your, cause I do know you, you're very creative and I do know that you're potentially maybe working on some stuff that we can't talk about, but I will ask you, who is your favorite artist? Like who's your favorite, like I would say your favorite band or artist. Do you have just one? Are you kind of, cause you're on the creative side. So you're like, I like country. I love this. I love that. Like kind of tell us. Yeah. Brian Wilson of the beach boys is my guiding light, not only for music, uh, but just, being creative and unique in general. And also, you know, coming from, if, you, if you're a person that came from pain, some kind of personal pain in your past, Brian Wilson lived it, breathed it, and he took that pain, right? And he turned it into something freaking beautiful. I think and that's why he's revered, quite honestly. It's not just the songs and the music. It's the fact that this guy's a survivor, right? He was supposed to die 30 years ago from drug overdoses, but this guy is still up there, still performing. And so there's a lot of inspiration I've drawn from him over the years. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, so the last question of the day here. So if you were to get, if you were to win $10 million, and I'm, I'm assuming, I know you're in Southern California, so that probably only lasts for a few years, but <laughs> if you were to make $10 million, somebody was a handless, you win a lottery ticket, something happens, hopefully nobody dies, but you get, you, somebody brings you a briefcase of money, and it's $10 million, what would change? Like, what, how would your life change? Yeah, so I'd keep a million, okay, for my own personal expenses over the next few years, and then I'd take nine of it, and I would start my nonprofit. I've been talking about this nonprofit idea for years and I just haven't had the time. Uh, it's the nonprofit is called Urban Entrepreneurs. And so I taught entrepreneurship for three years at a community college here in San Diego. And my idea was, hey, let's go into the inner city in San Diego and start a, a group, an organization, a nonprofit that only, the only mission is to help inner city men and women start businesses with the idea that we eventually wanna go out of business as an organization that we would train so many people and help so many people with building a business that we wouldn't need to be around anymore. So I think there's a real need for that. And I would take that 9 million and go nationwide with it, every city and just build it out. All right. So if anybody's listening has got $9 million, we have a taker. John is going to educate <laughs> urban folks of America, which I think is an awesome cause. The only problem with that answer is I thought for sure you'd give me some money. I thought maybe, yeah. maybe 100,000, like I kind of feel like we're close now, right? But I kind of feel like maybe I'm part of the will or something. That's so okay. that million, that million that I was going to take, there's, there's a percentage there. I think we could talk, we could definitely talk about it. Now I feel better because I was like, okay. God, if I have to bring this up when we're off the podcast, like I thought there was a connection and I'm not part of the, I just gave him $10 million for God's sakes. Like I thought for sure I'd get a small percentage. Yeah, right. I'm uh, not greedy by any means, but. Awesome. John, this was a, a great interview. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and if anybody yeah. needs to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Uh, John at contentlaunch.com. So J-O-N at contentlaunch, like you're launching a rocket.com. That sounds like a plan. John, thank you so much. Have an awesome day. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Shane.